Uh, all right. Uh, good evening and welcome everyone to the stacks. Uh, as always, I am Jay. I'm the curator of the stacks. And I am Shanna, your co-host for this evening, unless Most you're watching evenings. in the morning. Most evenings, really, listening. I would say. Typically. Yes. This week, we have a couple errors and sins of omission, uh, like we had back in uh, episode two. So we want to start out with another question, uh, as we did then. And uh, because we're, we, we finally just got our first five episodes up online, so these are actually going to start going up regularly from this point, uh, and it seems like a good time to introduce ourselves. Uh, so the question we'll be answering is, who are you? Uh, but first, I'm going to go over the errors while Shanna gives that some thought. Uh, first, I completely forgot one of the movies that I watched last week and one of the movies that was added to the stacks. Uh, Death Has Blue Eyes, the Nico Mastarakis movie, uh, is one I watched. It's a movie about a couple... It's, it's a very strange movie. It's... Uh, about these guys falling around a psychic, just like on some weird Greek island. Uh, it's We're going back three weeks now, so I don't really remember much about the <laughs> specifics of it, but like it's just a really crazy movie. Just like uh, a whole bunch of bizarre action sequences in 70s Greece. Uh, Interesting. And, and involving psychics and someone after them. I, or th this lady who's a psychic and a couple... Uh, dudes after her, I think. Uh, it was a lot of fun, but I don't recall a lot of specifics. Uh, and that is replaced with Black Test Car, which is a 60s Japanese corporate noir about uh, skullduggery in the uh, car industry, so the, the vehicle manufacturing industry, which is supposed to be really good. I have not seen that yet. That sounds um, interesting, too. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of errors, uh, I last week was we had a, a bit of a digression when I was trying to talk about the two Al Adamson Jim Kelly movies because for some stupid reason on Wikipedia they both list the same plot, which is not <laughs> actually what the two movies are. Uh, so I uh, I, I uh, made some notes to so I could remember which one was which and uh, go over it. So Black Samurai is the first of the two, and that one is where Jim Kelly is fighting a cult to rescue his girlfriend. Uh, his girlfriend is the daughter of the Minister of Kung Fu, apparently, which, I don't know, I guess is a thing. Uh, and he has to adventure with Jetpack to rescue her from this evil cult. Uh, and the other one, Death Dimension, is the one that I had remembered most of the plot elements from. It's the one with uh, Odd Job, Harold Cicada, uh, as a supervillain who's stolen this freeze bomb technology. Uh, and Jim Kelly is the secret super agent who has to stop him from using it. So it's the samurai one with the jetpack. Yes. <laughs> mm, all right. Okay. Uh, they're both a lot of fun, so I, I did want to give them the appropriate reverence because I had a pretty good time watching them. It's just, I watched both of them pretty close together, and they're both crazy Al Adams and Jim Kelly movies. They kind of blended together a bit. Fair uh, enough. So that's all the errors and so forth. Uh, 
who are you? Who am I? It's a big question. It's a huge question. Um, I wasn't expecting to go this deep <laughs> tonight. Um, well, obviously, my name is Shanna. Shanna Reen. Um, last name. We'll leave that out for now. Uh, I am a recently found out that I'm a non-binary transgender woman person with a I could just rattle off a bunch of labels, but that's not who I am, am. But the problem is, I haven't really ever much figured out who I am, because usually, for most of my life, up until I had a health emergency and came out of that with zero fucks left to give, most of my life I've just been going along with whatever and whoever, just doing whatever I could so I wouldn't get yelled at. So who am I? I don't know yet. All right. Oh, I love cats. Well, love my cats. cat just meowed. She she yeah. wanted to make sure that I. Oh yeah, Shana... she's on my lap now. And Shanna's cat is Plum. Uh, okay, and I'm Jay. Uh, live on the west coast of Canada. Uh, we do talk about weed from time to time. So, uh, just as a note, we're we're Canadian. It is legal here. <laughs> um. I don't know, beyond that, you know, just letter J, lowercase, period. Rest of the form deliberately left blank. Uh, okay. Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. N nothing further to say. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like we really got to know ourselves and each other. <laughs> well, I mean, in terms of uh, the, the gender question, I suppose it's a matter of I don't really believe in it. As a, okay, that's um, binary. Fair. Binary. I don't know. I don't buy it. <laughs> no, that's, anyway, that's perfectly fair. Anyway, our film this week, and kind of uh, on that note, is Luz, which uh, comes from Altered Innocence. We're reviewing from the uh, Altered Innocence Blu-ray of it. Uh, this is a fairly recent movie. I think it was what 2018 or something like that. Sometime in the last, like, five years, anyways. It's a fairly recent film, and it's a student film. Uh, would you like to start? Like, do you, do you have any um, uh, particular place to start with this? Well, I could try relaying the plot, but this isn't a... There's basically only one, two scenes that actually happen. Um, yeah, kind of. Like, and there's very few characters as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. We've got Luz, we've got a psychologist, uh, we've got a possessed lady, uh, there's a lady cop and a translator. Mm -hmm. and that's it. Yeah, there's uh, nobody else. We, we see two other people who do nothing. There's a bartender and there's a guy at the desk at the police station and we, uh, they, they're just present in, in the background of scenes and that's it. That's everybody. Uh -huh. And it is a student film. It was made for a very low budget. It's shot on 16 millimeter. Uh, it's, it's very simple and quiet. We get a lot of ambient room tone in terms of the sound. Oh, uh, I, I do want to comment. I loved the sound, especially because I was listening in headphones. Oh, nice. Yeah. And, and this is a movie you want to be uh, listening to in headphones if you can. It's got a really great soundtrack. I, I love the horror synth score. Mm-hmm. It, that that's the the score sold the whole 
movie, even though I never at any point understood anything that was happening. I was <laughs> invested anyway. So this is a movie about demonic possession, sort of. At least to some extent, that's sort of the central plot element we have. A possessed woman who has gotten into a cab and... The cab driver, I, I believe I, I used the word he last time. It is she. I uh, had not seen the movie yet, obviously. Mm. Um, and the the cab driver uh, gives a confession to the police. But meanwhile, we see the possessed woman uh, talking to a psychologist at the bar and ultimately possessing him as well. And then those two threads meet up and the psychologist goes to interview Luz at the police station and things just sort of uh, pile up and go awry from there. Yeah. Um, yeah, we begin with her just very, very slowly buying a drink from the vending machine. Mm -hmm. um, in in the police station. In the police station. And then saying to the person at the desk, like, is this really what you want to be doing with your life? Is this how um, you want to live your life? That's it, yeah. And, and that whole thing, buying a drink and then saying that, I just looked at the counter on the thing, takes about five minutes. That's the kind of movie this is. A lot of really long, slow shots. Uh, it's, um, it's weird because it's a slow cinema movie, but it's also very short because it's only about 70 minutes. Mm -hmm. It. Uh, I, I really liked the long and slow shots. It kind of reminded me of like my favorite and most memorable part, Memorable parts of uh, Evangelion, actually. Okay, interesting. Um, uh, it's been so long since I've seen Evangelion, like high school. Oh, yes, yes. I, I saw it for the first time when it came out on Netflix a couple of years ago. And okay. uh, it kind of ruined anime for me. I haven't watched any anime since. It's, it's heavy. It's, it's a hard one to watch. Like, it, it leaves you really drained at the end of it. Mm-hmm. But that's... But that's yeah, a that, that's a different thing altogether. But the the long shots where nothing is happening, um, like like in the beginning and when they're setting up the chairs for the interview, mm -hmm. those those stayed with me, even though there's just nothing happening. I just think it was a brilliant. I I, I liked it. I liked it. I think it's a movie that does mood extremely well. And uh -huh. the, the slow scenes where you just have uh, someone doing something and just them being completely suffused in a mood, that's really where the movie shines the most because it's just the movie really dwelling in the mood itself. Um, so we get, it moves to the psychologist and we see the psychologist at a bar and uh, there's this very intense woman who's at the bar, at the other end of the bar. Uh, and she starts talking to him about uh, Luz. Although we don't know immediately that it is. She says that her girlfriend jumped out of a moving taxi. Uh, and this is why she wants to speak with the psychologist. Right. Uh, and she starts giving most of the backstory of how Luz became involved with this demon, basically. The, or at least that's what it seems to be. There seems to be some sort of demon that has fallen in love with her through a ritual she performed that summoned it. Is that how this all got... Ha okay, 
Now yeah. I get it. I, I'm fairly certain that that's the basic plot line. So when Luz and uh, this woman, Nora, uh, we, we learn much later that uh, this is a woman mm -hmm. who did know Luz in Chile, I think. Uh, at least it's someone that she yeah. does know because because she does know her they, name when they, she when we finally get the flashback of her picking her up at the airport she knows her like she knows her name yeah they they went to the same school is yeah what it was. or at least that's the backstory the possessed woman tells as the demon so we don't know if she's the actual girl that went to school with her or if it's the demon saying that she met her there and is possessing this body of someone else she knows potentially because that, that's a oh, that's yeah. a point that's not entirely clear it might not be her but just might be someone else that she knows because uh we do see the demon possess multiple people throughout the movie and it just moves from body to body mm -hmm. um uh, so the backstory basically is that they met at a Catholic girls' school uh, in Chile, and that Luz apparently has some sort of psychic powers, uh, or or at least that is the the woman's belief, or she states that, and that uh, at some point she performed this ritual on a girl who believed she was pregnant but was not actually pregnant. Uh, and they got kicked out of school because it was a blasphemous ceremony. And then the the pregnant girl, who's not actually pregnant, committed suicide afterwards. Or at least that's what the demon says, but that's like a supposedly kind of thing. Yeah, once you realize that most of this backstory, all of this backstory pretty much comes from the demon who might just be making most of it up. We figured the demon is probably more or less telling elements of truth. It's just we're not sure how much of it... We're not sure if the people involved are people who are involved. Like, we don't know if the demon is representing a person uh, as the demon or just is the demon representing themselves in various different bodies, which kind of makes it hard to say what the overall uh, arc is in that regard. Yeah, that, that's the problem I had. I'm like, okay, so all I'm really understanding is that the demon is just jumping around trying to get to her. The why and all that stuff just sailed right over my head. Right, we don't learn why until pretty much the end. Uh, or, or not really the end, but like the end of the interview when uh, and we may as well just sort of jump around with it because this isn't really a plot film uh eventually luz sings the demon a song and the demon says that it loves her and that like that's why it was falling because the demon had fallen in love with her through this ritual i suppose like presumably that's how they became uh joined together is that they you know, Luz performed this ritual and that summoned the demon and then the demon was sort of like imprinted upon her in some sense, right? Right, right. Okay. Um, somehow when I watched it, I just completely glazed, like missed the ritual part. So now now it's falling into place. Okay. I don't know how I missed that because uh, I was 
so caught up in the visuals and part of it was a visual of a ritual, but I thought that was a metaphor for something else. Uh, I, uh, yeah, so that, that is a real ritual that she did that got her kicked out of the Catholic school. And it's a blasphemous ritual. So you hear the ritual a lot, but you don't see it very often. She'll recite all of, like everybody recites all of the words of it. Except for the translator, he won't do it. Right. The, the translator gets very <laughs> offended by the, the blasphemy and he, he gets too sensitive about it. And that's when things just sort of take a turn is when he's too sensitive to read back or he's too sensitive to do the translation uh, yeah. from Spanish to German, I believe, because they're in they're in Germany, but they're interviewing this woman who's or they're they're interviewing Luz, who is I think speaking Spanish. Um, I th- yeah yeah she mostly yeah, speaks so. Spanish. Uh, and the translator finally is like, I, I'm not going to say that. I, I don't want to say that because it's blasphemous. And then just suddenly things sort of snap uh, and Liz's necklace starts choking her. Uh, and then the psychologist possesses the lady cop and the translator becomes just frozen in horror in his little booth. Just like, like yeah, literally just locks frozen in, in place. There. Yep. Although I, I guess we're, we're kind of missing one key uh point of plot is that the psychologist becomes possessed by the woman oh uh, yes after after, after listening drunk oh they when when she's telling him the the backstory she's just loading herself and him up on like drugs and alcohol and just so many really delicious looking girl drinks <laughs> They do look pretty tasty. And like she's just ordering drink after drink after drink and making him have more. And like there there's a point like he knows he's on call and is going to have to go to work as a psychologist. Like there's something that he knows is supposed to be coming and she's still kind of coaxing him to keep drinking against his better judgment. And I kind of feel like maybe that's already some sort of demonic influence in making him override his judgment there. Um, I, I kind of feel like that could be the case too. It's hard to she, say. She even manages to lure him into the bathroom. Yeah. Uh, and we see, and like before they go in the bathroom, it's already obvious that she's very unwell, like not only mentally unwell, but like physically unwell. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and she goes, they go into the bathroom and we see that she's bleeding from her ear, I think. I know she's, we see that she's yeah. bleeding and then she's like, okay, uh, gonna, gonna do a little thing here. And she, she doesn't kiss the psychologist, but they, it's sort of like passing the soul through the mouths into the psychologist. Yeah, I, I read that as she was just giving him the world's best hand job. Well, like a light <laughs> passes from throat to throat. Oh yeah, th- that happens creepy. too. That that happens after the world's best hand job. It's not really, like, or is it I, before? I don't remember. I'm not sure. There, there's a weird connection that they're making. Yes, uh, and it's sort of wordless and just like it's it's not really clear what is happening there. But then we see this transition of some sort of soul or entity from one to the other, and then the psychologist has to run off and do the interview uh, with Luz. Yeah, yeah, that's... And then the woman is just 
doesn't show up again. Well, except she, in flashbacks. I think she dies. I, I think once the soul has left her body, like once the, the demon has left her, she seems to just fall on the floor of the bathroom dead. That's kind of what I thought, too, that she was... She, um, yeah, that she died after the, the soul left. Mm-hmm. Uh, so presumably that also happens with the psychologist later on, because we, we don't see the psychologist leave the room. Oh, yes. Uh, so we, we get to the, the, the hypnosis part is very strange. Like, I don't, I don't entirely get how it's supposed to appear to the characters in the film, because the whole hypnosis thing is very strange. Yeah. Um, uh, would you like to get yeah, into? Yeah, I can't it? tell how much of it is how much of it is um, hypnosis and how much of it is just crazy shit hitting the fan from like this demon just influencing all these people all this time because the room gets covered in smoke and I'm not sure if that's from the hypnosis or if it's actually covered in smoke. Okay, so I think the smoke comes from the car accident, the memory of the car accident. Okay, so that would make that part of the hypnosis. Okay, except that... it seems to be visible to everyone, so they're all they're well, they're that... all involved in the vision, or is it actually happening? Because like we see, what what happens is the psychologist hypnotizes her to just walk through the events of the evening when she met the woman at the airport. And that's going pretty normally at first, and we hear a lot of the things that both the possessed woman and Luz had said for all of the rest of the film, because Luz has just basically been catatonic and repeating things that either she said or were said to her by the possessed woman uh, in that sequence. So everything that she's saying up to that point are just things that she says here again. Yeah. Uh, and then we get to a point where there is a car accident in the memory, and then suddenly the room starts to fill up with like smoke or fog. And like I think that's when the necklace starts choking her as well. Or or um, no, the necklace starts choking her, and that's when she crashes the car. And that's right. when the room fills up with smoke. Uh and and that's also when uh the translator kind of freaks out and he's frozen in there, and then the psychologist uh he seems the, the demon seems to simultaneously then possess both the psychologist and the lady cop. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of got the impression that he just sort of turned her into a minion, like a vampire sort of does. Yeah, maybe. Because I don't think he was like directly being her like he was being the psychologist. I, I didn't not. get that impression because he kind of had to give her orders. True, although things get kind of weird because so the psychologist changes into a dress and yep. relives the ritual. Like uh, he lies down in a circle of salt and they start doing the, the same uh, chant, the same ritual chant that uh, they did the previous times. Mm -hmm. uh, but then the translator comes out of the booth and whacks him in the face with a mixing board. And it seems to break the spell because the lady cop starts firing wildly with her gun in the right. room. Right, right. So, yeah, the smoke has to actually be there because otherwise she'd have no trouble hitting whatever. Well, unless we're seeing what the way they're all experiencing it 
I mean, that that's sort of the weird thing is we we're not sure how much of this is experiential and how much of it is just like we're seeing what the what they're seeing, or is it the reality of the sequence? It's it's not a consistent reality that we're that we're experiencing. Yeah, yeah, no, it's definitely um, one of those how much of this is an illusion thing. Yeah. Things. Uh, so this is when Luz sings the demon a song. Uh, it tells her it loves her, and they kiss, and she's left just hyperventilating crazy. Yeah. It, at first, I thought that the deep the demon was passing to her, but we don't. See, do we see the same like light effect? I don't believe we do. No, I don't think so. It seems to just kiss her. It, like it doesn't want to possess her the way it has the others. It's using the others so that it can be physically close to her right that make okay that makes sense yeah and, and like this is a movie with a lot of repetition like most of the dialogue will hear the same lines multiple different times from multiple different characters because they all kind of have this psychic crossover among them like there's no like we really don't know any of the characters except through this one small event so like, for instance, the the lady from the airport, we have no idea who she is ultimately because we don't even know if the character she is playing in most of the film has any relation to who she is in reality or who she was prior to the demon. And we have no idea why the psychologist was drinking in the bar in the first place. No clue. No, no, no idea. Uh, so ultimately, Luz leaves the room with the lady cop. Uh, and the psychologist is just still in there, and we don't really know what goes on from that point, but we do hear the translator still having some sort of panic attack uh, in the room, presumably still with the psychologist as they leave. Yeah, because... Yeah, yeah. Um, and then they go back... Don't they go back out through the same uh, entryway from the very beginning? Yeah, exactly the same. And it does give me one question. It's like, how did the guy at the desk hear nothing the whole time? There were gunshots. Uh, well, you know, he's... Because there's the he guy strikes... at the desk. We see him oh, the yeah. whole five-minute opening scene. He's just sitting there still. And then the closing sequence, when she comes out, he's still there. Yep. <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't know. Maybe it's some kind of possession that's on him as well. But I don't know. Maybe. Um, I like to think he's just someone who's like, this is not my problem. My job is to do this paperwork. I'm just the desk guy. I'm the desk guy. Is this how you want to live your life? Actually, yeah, kind of. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. Like, it's, it's a very short film. It's very quick. Not a lot happens. It's so, and, and what does happen, it's not clear how much of it takes place. Uh, yeah, it's it, it's it's much more of a concept than it is a story. It it was very, it, but at the, that's not to say that it wasn't entertaining. It really was. I I I was like glued to it, even though I never understood any of it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's it's a very fun watch. It goes by really quick, even though like like we said, the the shots are pretty slow. There's a lot of long, slow shots where nothing happens, but it's fun somehow. Like it just it moves pretty quick. There's not a lot of uh, 
there's not a lot of digression. You you have these two locations, you have these five characters, and you you just there's always something weird taking place, and there's always some sort of very strange mood surrounding everything that's happening. Yeah, the the sound adds the soundtrack and like just the sound effects adds so much because there was this part where her eyes were closed and you could only tell what was going on from the sound and it mm-hmm. it worked. Yeah. Uh really good for a student film. Like this this was something that was just submitted as someone's student thesis at uh film school. Uh and yeah, I mean not a lot of people make a, a, an actual feature film uh, at film school, so good on this guy. It it came out really well. And I also like the short films that are included on the disc as well. There's a couple uh, fairly similarly styled shorts that are included. Oh, yes. I was going to watch those, but then I fell asleep. <laughs> then I went to bed and forgot about it. Well, that's fair enough. But uh, uh, yeah. So any additional thoughts about Luz before we move on to The Giant Claw? Um, I think we've about covered everything. I just uh, I just want to emphasize just how much this how much listening to it with headphones really enhanced the experience. I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much if I were just watching on TV. Ooh. Uh so Luz is replaced in the stacks with Poison. Uh, which is Todd Haynes' second film. Uh, Todd Haynes famously made uh, Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story uh, with Barbie dolls, which was his first film. Uh, This is his second one, which is an anthology film uh, about uh, three three different uh, short films about queer identity. Uh, So we've got Hero, Horror, and Homo. Uh, Hero is a mock TV documentary about uh, someone murdering their father. Uh, Horror is a 50s B-movie about a mad sex experiment. (laughs) Okay. Homo is about an obsessive sexual relationship in prison. Oh. Uh, That sounds interesting. Yeah, supposed to be really good. It's one I've never seen, but I really like all of the other films I've seen by Todd Haynes, and it's uh, supposed to be pretty uh, well-liked. I, I, I think it's kind of one of his most acclaimed pictures. Uh, all right, so let's move on to The Giant Claw, genuinely one of my favorite movies ever. I figure we're probably going to talk about this for three hours, so it's good that we uh, got through Luz pretty quickly. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, please, I, I guess, please start, uh, and just general thoughts. Like I've seen this movie so many times, so I don't even know where to begin. I've seen this movie probably 30 times. Um, yeah. Okay. So general thoughts, it was just an ordinary day and they were doing a job. God damn it. They were <laughs> serious and they were having fun, but they were doing a job, this job that they were doing. They were watching the radar. They were looking at it and it was beeping and it was beeping and it was normal and it was a job the narrator is one of the greatest strengths of this film because i feel like the first 15 minutes of the movie is all narration right Um, like just just a bunch of images of people doing things and the narrator's like 
And these are people having fun. People having fun doing a job. Doing a job that's important. <laughs> like on and on and on. Oh, yeah, just amazing. It's so good. Uh, and it's the narrator who first says the iconic line that it looks like a flying battleship. Oh, yeah. Because it's uh, what we, we see our hero. Uh, is it Jeff Morrow? I can't I remember who the lead actor is. I don't know. Uh, anyway, we see him in a plane, or at least we see him against a wall with like a curve on it that makes it kind of look like maybe he's in a plane. Uh, and, you know, he's got the helmets. He's got to be, right? Uh, and we don't hear any actual dialogue for the first few minutes, but we hear the narrator say that he reports in that he sees a fly, something the size of of a flying battleship. Uh, and this flying battleship line comes up a lot in this movie. This is the most famous line from the movie because it's said at least a dozen times. Uh, oh, everybody calls this thing a flying battleship. Yeah, there, there's no other frame of reference that you can compare this monster to. Yeah, a battleship. It's, it's the size yep. of a battleship. Um, I, like the the thing about the narrator saying at first, I I always feel bad for the character because everyone's making fun of him for calling it a flying battleship, and it's. But the narrator it, told him to. It was the narrator who said it. Like uh, there there's a part where the lady says to him, it "Sounds like you're flying battleship again." And I always want to yell at her and it's like, "Hey, it wasn't him who said that. It was the narrator." <laughs> <laughs> Um, so this movie is one of the big 50s giant monster ones, one of the American ones. And initially it was supposed to have pretty high-end special effects by Ray Harryhausen. And, and then they didn't that, have the money. <laughs> yeah, he hearing that it was supposed to have good special effects suddenly makes everything about this movie make sense. Because they didn't know they were making a crappy B-movie. Well, I mean, they sort of knew, but they kind of thought they were doing something a little bit more high-end. Like, I, I can see how, you know, if you've seen Jason and the Argonauts or you've seen some of those big Harryhausen pictures, you can tell, like, this is not... His would not have looked like this. Uh, <laughs> no, the, the, it wouldn't have. The giant claw, or La Carcagne, uh, as our French-Canadian... Uh, Jacques uh, ends up calling it later on. It looks completely absurd. It's this huge marionette <laughs> puppet with googly eyes, this big <laughs> warty nose. Like the beak is very, it's, it's like silly shaped. It's like a banana. <laughs> it's like a cartoon vulture, but like stupider. <laughs> it's the silliest looking monster I've ever seen in a movie. Like, it's got these teeth. Oh my god, yeah, it's got big goofy teeth. It's a beak with big goofy teeth. Yeah, and it's got like like treasure troll hair. Remember the treasure oh, trolls? Oh yeah, completely. It just sticks straight up. Yeah, it, it's got the hair of a Norfin troll, exactly the same. And it makes just this really silly sound. It's just it's so loud and it does it all the time. It doesn't even when it's not on the screen, just when somebody's talking about it. Yeah, we, we know that it's a scene <laughs> with the giant claw because that sound constantly happens endlessly in the background. <laughs> oh, man. 
<laughs> and then I went outside after and I heard a bird sound just like that. <laughs> and, I'm just, <laughs> and I'm just like, oh my god, I can't deal with nature anymore. <laughs> it's, it's so good. Like, it, the... <laughs> I'm going to be laughing for a bit. Just, just talk over me. I totally understand. Um, cause like, and, and I suppose that's the thing that's most amazing about the movie is that it does have a fairly simple, straightforward and almost realistically scientific plot. Not very realistic, but it's got a concept. Uh -huh. uh, our giant space buzzard ha is from another dimension and it's protected by a shield of antimatter. <laughs> Apparently. Uh, so that anything it touches explodes. Uh, and the, the first time we see it interact with just a bunch of people, we, we, we see like a military plane. Like who, who is on this military plane? Like it seems to be important people. And then the, that the, the, Oh yeah. Like diplomats or something. Yeah. Like it seems to be a group of diplomats that, it explodes and that, that's sort of when it becomes more well known because for a time nobody believes the guy that the thing is real they're all make they're all just dunking on him for oh, calling this thing a flying battleship the Please. best freaking line that i heard it's like i i can't remember exactly how it went and it's like well well my planes were going out there looking for your imaginary <laughs> giant bird that doesn't exist one of them mysteriously disappeared all because of your stupid imaginary thing it's like you don't think problem. it could be to do with the thing that he saw there's some amazing leaps of logic here and I think my absolute favorite one is when he's tracking the path of <laughs> cloth <laughs> just, so like even, okay yeah so like <sighs> what is the one path that you can draw that will ultimately cross every single possible point a spiral yep that'll See, do it <laughs> and and the movie makes a, a, like it it has a whole set piece where he's like oh man i've got it because there's all these just random dots and it's like wait i know how this works and he finds a center one and then he just draws a spiral and you can see on you can see on the paper the lines of the spiral already drawn that he's tracing <laughs> if you look closely which is hilarious because it doesn't it didn't even need to be that carefully drawn it's a spiral if you draw any spiral if you just draw it through the points it will go through the points it doesn't there's there's no consistency to it. It's complete nonsense. Oh no, the bird's going in a circle. Well, as, as it turns out, he is correct, and the the yeah. bird is just going in a spiral. Of course. <laughs> um. Yep. So, like, we, I I don't remember the exact order of things. I know they end up, uh, in Canada. They they go hang out with this French Canadian guy. Who yeah, has I think a, they like crashed a plane or something i i think they are attacked by the giant claw and they yeah but they survive because they're the they heroes. survive right uh and like i think it's maybe a thing where they're flying somewhere and they don't actually see what happens i think their pilot is badly injured or maybe killed in the crash 
That's the right. Pilot that's right. Is the guy pilot, who sees uh, it for the first time there. And it looks like a. It's the size of a flying battleship. It is the size of a flying battleship, which is pretty big. <laughs> it's pretty. Yeah. <laughs> Battleships are pretty big. They're not small. Um, and I, I really love the French Canadian guy that we meet here, Jacques, with his Applejack. Oh, he's, he's so good. Uh, and he's the one who names it La Carcagna, which is supposedly a French-Canadian myth about this giant bird, which doesn't make sense because our understanding is that it comes through some sort of rip in space. Yeah, the, the myth that he's talking about and describing doesn't sound like this bird. It sounds like a, it's like a human-sized thing with like a human face and a bird body or or a human body and a bird face i'm not sure it's not this maybe that's what the harry Housen effect was supposed to look like oh maybe because uh i mean the ultimate effect they have does not look like that (laughs) (laughs) it it really doesn't like i can pick like every time i picture it in my mind it puts a smile on my face because it's so silly looking and i think especially it's the giant nostrils that it has (laughs) yes it it has these huge nostrils on its curvy beak and the big silly googly eyes and the huge splash of troll hair like like they couldn't have made it funnier looking if they were trying to it's and it doesn't move it doesn't like, move. They, they, it's, it's one solid puppet. They can move it against a background. It can, it can be pulled through air. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. I, I think the mouth can open and close maybe, but not yes. really. Yeah. Cause it, cause you see the beat go up and down a little bit. That's true. A little bit. When, when it goes, ah, <laughs> and when it flies ah. towards the camera to devour the people standing in front of the green screen. Right. I really love the uh, giant claw rampage scenes where we see it break buildings, where we see it take out planes. Uh, yes. All of that stuff is so much fun because it's just constantly that sound. The, the, the two different noises it makes, the ah and the Aah! And just, just cuts <laughs> between the two and then you just see people being, you see buildings getting destroyed. It uh, mounts the Empire State Building at one point. Of course. I I just love the fact that over the course of a few days, it gets to the point where the whole world is terrified of this bird. The entire world is shut down. Yeah, like... Well, because nothing can touch it, except, uh, except it can land on a nest later on, because it can turn off its force shield? I think... You know, I think that's has to be what's happening because otherwise it wouldn't be able to land on its. Unless they just um, didn't think about that part, because there's so we learn that it has a nest with an with a couple eggs, or is there just one egg? I can't remember. I, I think it's just the one egg. Just one really. If big there is egg. more than one egg, then the uh, the heroes didn't do their job very good because they only shot one. Right. So and it's pretty near Jacques because eventually they come back to Jacques. Uh, they they leave him ranting about La Carcagna, uh, and then they're thinking about it later, and I think it's after he's come up with his uh, brilliant spiral idea 
that he it, it occurs to him like oh it must have started here and this is where it lives so they go back and they start like looking around the area where they ran into Jacques and they find a nest that it actually comes and lays on well and, let's not forget the giant footprint that nobody thought to investigate until now <laughs> oh yeah there was that giant footprint too just outside like, of Jacques and we even saw it earlier did. in the movie yeah. Nobody, and apparently nobody investigated it. I guess they figured it just was everywhere. But so, based on, based on the, the footprint and sitting on the nest, presumably it's able to turn the shield off. So it's weird that when they see the bird on the nest, they shoot the egg, but not the bird. Had had they already come up with the force field theory at this point? I don't remember. Um, I, I don't think... know if they. I don't know if they had, but it still seems weird that they don't shoot the bird. Well, yeah, that's true. Because <laughs> I mean, they keep trying for a, a long portion of the movie, trying to shoot it with stuff. But anyway, they they shoot the egg. Yeah. So eventually, the, he just decides that the bird has an antimatter force shield. Yeah, I, it's 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 another thing like the spiral theory where it's just like, oh wait, I know what it is. It's the only possible explanation. <laughs> we, we can't shoot it because it has a shield of antimatter, and now we have something to destroy the shield. So we'll just invent a new particle. Right. He needs to create a particle that will uh, disperse the antimatter shield that this bird has. Yep. <laughs> Uh, and failure, 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 failure after failure. And we, we get a whole montage of, uh, him blowing up various devices, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Just so much light bulbs and smoke. Uh, although, and then one of them, he blows up the entire room and ends up in the hospital. And I was like, okay, well, I mean, I, I guess it's just not going to work out and we're, we're just going to have to come up with a different method. And he's like, no, no, don't you understand? Uh, we're, we're ready. Let's go. It's, oh, yeah. it's all when, done. When he figures it out and he's like super happy, even though he's in the hospital. Because like he and... wakes up from a coma and he's like, no, come on, we got to get going. I, I did it this time. And I feel like they should be like, are you... Tour. Yeah, right. Because he just came out of a coma, but he was only in that coma for like an hour and a half, so. And he is pretty gung-ho about it. Yeah. <laughs> I just love it. Just invents a, a new particle. Uh, we don't know how long it takes him to do this, either. It must be a fairly short time, because this thing's reign of terror seems to be pretty severe. Like, it's... It, oh, yeah. it, it holds yeah, the entire true. world in terror. So they go out after it and they, they put this... It, well, the, the weird thing is he's still building the device when they get in the plane and start flying. Oh, yeah, he's building it. it on the plane. <laughs> Which is like, I thought you had this ready. And they, they, they fit this cannon onto the back of the plane. Right. They they need to fire it behind them because otherwise, if they're firing it in front of them, they could run into the particle and it, it would potentially destroy the plane. Right. I believe is what they say. And once he eventually gets it up and running, it, it totally works. Uh, he, he destroys the shield. It, it goes up in a puff of smoke. And the, the movie ends very suddenly. It's just like <laughs> he gets rid of the shield and 
people shoot the, the giant claw and then it lands in the ocean and then the end <laughs> yep. up. Like we don't even see them celebrate. It hits the water and it says the end. I was so expecting and wanting the claw to just make a middle finger. Right? I, I needed that. I was like, please. Oh, that's okay. I understand. It, it was, was the, the 50s. 50s. Yeah. And so like we, we've gone through a lot of stuff. There are a lot of other little things through it. Like there's the part where they run into the teenagers who are like out hot rodding because they're not afraid of no bird. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, it makes sense when you realize that that's the age group they would have to be to grow up to be boomers. That's true. Uh, and like, it, it is a kind of similar reaction to, uh, like it, it kind of feels like 2020 It's like, ha this thing's not going to touch us. We're just going to put some salt on its tail. <laughs> and then it swoops <laughs> down and destroys them all. They all get killed. Uh-huh. Uh, and it has that moment where the female lead looks very, uh, seriously at the salt shaker after the car crash. It's like, huh, <laughs> looking very seriously at a salt shaker. Oh, are we going to talk about how the dude basically just sort of forces himself on the female lead on the airplane? Well, she's sleeping? she's into it, but it she doesn't is. make sense, and it hasn't been set up in any way. Like, it's maybe the most tacked-on romance I've ever seen in a movie. Oh, no, but they explain it with a very long and... <laughs> incomprehensible it's metaphor a very long weird flirting sequence where they're on a plane and it's like a red-eye flight and everyone around them is trying to sleep and they're just incessantly flirting back and forth but this really fakey stupid flirting like it's so overwritten yeah you no, see... nobody talks like this no and you see the guy in the seat behind them getting steadily more annoyed by them until Finally, he just stands up and tells them to shut up. <laughs> and I've never seen that before in a movie where, like, the leads are doing their silly flirting sequences and just some random extras like, shut up, you guys are idiots, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. I, I want to believe that they filmed that on an actual plane and that was an actual guy, but I don't think it was. No, but I want to believe it. It doesn't look like a real plane. It definitely looks like a room. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Aforementioned special effects budget on this film. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess not. Not a lot else specifically to say about this movie. It's just I love this movie. Like I have watched this movie so many times, and it's never not fun. It's it's so. The fact, okay, so they build up this monster. When you first see it, you can't see it. It's all blurry. So kind of like how in the, the Alien movies, how they build it up until, and then late, and then finally you see it, and it's like, whoa. So they do the exact same thing. You first see the monster, like, a good, like, probably 30 or 45 minutes in. Like, they were holding back on this. Thing. It is at least a solid half hour, yeah. <laughs> like like it's paced like they were proud of it it's a big reveal 
Uh, and like I said, when, when we were talking about this last week, uh, the, the main, the lead actor saw this movie in his local theater with, you know, yeah. all the people in the town. And when it finally came up and he saw the monster, he was so embarrassed. He left. <laughs> <laughs> I would too. <laughs> I would just be like, okay, I, all right. I'm excited. Let's see this thing that I helped bring to life. Oh my God. This is one of those old B-movies that I would actually love to see remade today, but as a comedy. Just use uh, the same puppet, just find it, don't even it, do anything. Just just do one almost exactly the same, uh, and just, you know, like, get get a Will Ferrell, get, get a, you know, a, a big comedic star to be the main guy, get a, get a few of those people, and man, you, you wouldn't have to do much. It'd be Key such a good deal. Key and Peel, that would be so great. A Key and Peel versus Giant Claw. Yes. <laughs> Their flirting sequence on the plane would be so much better. <laughs> it would be way better. Oh, yeah. Uh, so this one, I, I would say, is a, a solid recommend overall. <laughs> I, <laughs> Sorry, I'm still. <sighs> it's so okay, much fun. It's really fun. It's just, and like the, the puppet is so funny. Like it is really hard to, uh, underscore just how funny that just the reveal of it. And then that it just, just seeing it over and over again. And it's always a big, important, supposedly scary moment in the movie. And everyone's running (laughs) in terror and everyone's like, Oh, this is a Google guys. It's the, the most scary monster that's ever ravaged Earth. And it's just like, wow, that is the silliest thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's great. I, I absolutely love it. <laughs> it's so good. All right. So any final thoughts on the giant claw before we go into our uh, movements? Somebody, they should make it like a computer, like a CGI, super detailed, really intricately animated, but look exactly like that. Yes. Yeah. Like just, just update it. So like do like a complete 3D render of the original puppet. In whatever state it's currently in. So if it's like falling apart. Well, I think it's probably entirely disintegrated by now because this oh, is like a likely. foam rubber thing, right? And, you know, they didn't have a budget, so I don't think it was even kept. Well, anyway, it's, it is time to move on to our uh, final part of the evening, I guess. We're going to go through the movements, uh, stuff that we've yeah. watched. Uh, so I haven't watched a ton of stuff because uh, I was catching up on some other things uh first thing i watched is a uh ape or ape uh as recently featured on red later red letter media uh it's ape in richard evansy's <laughs> okay this um... was a 3d mockbuster. it was a knockoff of the 1976 king kong okay uh, but you know, made for no budget, and it's like a guy in a carpet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at the uh, the letterbox page right now, and I'm just seeing a gorilla 
holding a shark and um, I can't really and I think a boat and then in the uh, the header or the banner photo it's just a gorilla giving the camera a middle finger yep that is a thing that happens in the movie the gorilla does or the the giant ape does give uh, the camera the finger uh, it's it's a weird it, it's kind of like cheerfully vulgar there's a lot of just people saying yeah shit (laughs) (laughs) at at the end of sequences like it's it's a very silly movie and kind of knowingly silly uh it's so ape or ape which stands for attacking primate monster no (laughs) yes yes, that is correct (laughs) aggressive Uh, uh, attacking primate monster. Come on, the, no aggressive primate mutant. It's our aggressive primate entity. It's right there. Monster. <laughs> aggressive is better than attack. Come on, guys. Oh well. Um. So you know, it's a giant ape that's going on a rampage after. Like, it, it's the same plot as King Kong, basically, except it's in South Korea. Uh, for some reason, the the ape just goes on a rampage in South Korea, and there's an actress that it kidnaps. It's really fun. It's stupid as hell, but there's just a lot of swearing, a lot of blood. The costume is, again, similar to Giant Claw. It's hilariously bad looking. Uh, and you have these constant cutaways to this guy who's supposed to be an American general, who is just fielding calls from everybody about this ape and just it's not working out i'm just imagining that scene from the simpsons oh a giant elephant let me just type that up on my invisible typewriter it's almost exactly like that for real like there are he he has some of those kind of like sure giant ape sounds very realistic (laughs) but uh yeah a really fun time not good but (laughs) <laughs> enjoyable uh i also watched star trek 3 of course that's the search for spock ah yes uh, who famously spoiler alert he died at the end of two indeed and then he had so much fun making two that it was leonard nimoy's directorial debut uh, oh that's right. star trek 3 he had such a good time making he's like well i'm gonna even direct the next one uh, so three is the one that I was talking about last time where it has Christopher Lloyd with a Klingon dog. Uh, and famously, instead of the, the big con line, we have, uh, Kirk calling him, you Klingon bastard, uh, multiple <laughs> times. It's really funny. Uh, and you know, we, we deal with the fallout of the Genesis project. Uh, we, we get, uh, mindless horny teen Spock, which is kind of fun. Oh, uh, wow, okay. It's it's a good time. It's not it's nowhere near as good as 2, obviously. It's a, it's a clear step down, but it's kind of well, hard not to enjoy. It. Yeah. And and it's kind of hard not to enjoy it. Like it, and it's also sort of essential between the two because, you know, uh and it's also why they were kind of in my mind is 2, 3 and 4, they take place back to back to back. They all take place in a row and I kind of tend to watch all of them together. Like even since childhood. Well, it makes sense. After after Wrath of Khan, you want more. Like Ooh. right away, you want more. Absolutely. 
Uh, and it picks up immediately after the ending of two, which is kind of cool. Oh, cool. Uh, I also watched Beyond Terror, uh, which is a Spanish horror movie. Uh, that's the one about this group of, it's, it's another teen violence gang horror movie. Uh, they kidnap a couple people and they go hide out in a creepy uh, old abandoned church uh, where they find out there's a bunch of mummies uh, who are who are potentially guarding riches. Uh, but before they get to the church, they it, it's just kind of like the first half of the movie is them doing a whole bunch of crime. Uh, so, okay. you know, like they they murder people, they uh, sell drugs, they uh they, they hold up a bar, they kill a couple cops, uh, and they do this home invasion of this old lady. And when they're and they, they set the place on fire and as they're leaving, uh, and we cut to the old lady uh, calling on Satan to put a curse on them. Uh, oh, and, okay. And it makes their car stop at this church, and then, you know, they, they have to deal with these mummies and stuff. Uh, they they clearly fucked with the wrong Satanist. My favorite thing about the movie, though, is there's so there's a part w when they invade this lady's home. Uh, they kill the dog, her her attack dog outside, right? And, and then every time in the rest of the movie, they keep hearing a dog howling, and every time they immediately is like, oh, I'm gonna, we better go find that dog. We're gonna go find that dog. We're gonna kill it. We're gonna eat it. And they, they, it's like they killed this one dog and now they just can't get the idea out of their minds. Like, man, I really want to eat dogs now. <laughs> really weird. Uh, again, pretty good time. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I watched Freddy versus Jason. Uh, oh, I've been eyeing that one on the list. It sucks. It's a terrible movie. Oh, I, really? I, I, I've never liked Freddy versus Jason. And I, I think I'm sort of a minority opinion on it. And I get why people do sort of like it because it's pretty silly. Uh, it's very mainstream crowd pleasing. It's kind of like a blockbuster film instead of like a horror film. And that's kind of what I don't like about it. It just seems like every line in the movie, I, I want to see the camera just like push into someone's face so they can say the line because it feels like it should be in a trailer. Like every <laughs> line. Oh, really? Uh, it's got a fake Jason Muse, which is super weird. Yeah, you know, fake uh, Jason Muse. Yeah, I remember Jason Muse. Right from Jane Silent Bob. So it's someone playing basically Jay, but in this Friday the Thirteenth movie, and it's not him. <laughs> it's, okay, it's so weird. Uh, best part definitely Jason on fire. Uh, there's a part where Jason's on fire and he. Uh, rampages through a party in a cornfield that part is rad i don't really like any other things in the movie but that scene is pretty cool i i think part of my problem with the movie is that it's much more of an, a nightmare on elm street movie than a friday the 13th movie and friday the 13th has kind of always been my preference okay it just kind of has nothing of the friday the 13th tone or feel to it um like it's it's it, it's reasonably fun you know it's got a pretty good cast for this kind of thing it's clearly like a big budget event film rather than just like a you know here is number 10 in the series but it there's there's very little to it that feels at all like a friday the 13th movie you have none of the atmosphere none of 
Well, that's kind uh, of a shame. Yeah. It's like I I most people do like it, but uh it's it's just one that has never fully worked for me because of that. Uh I also watched three different movies from the Andy Milligan set. Uh now I don't oh. think you've ever seen any Andy Milligan, have you? Um I don't believe I have, no. Probably not. Now Andy Milligan is a very bad filmmaker. Like you have not seen a movie as bad as an Andy. Like you've seen Plan Nine from Outer Space. We we watched that last last year, year before. It must have been the year before. We didn't watch much in twenty twenty together. I think it might have been early twenty twenty, like February. Oh, you know, it could have been. Could have been. been. But Andy Milligan makes Ed Wood look like Spielberg. Uh, Andy Milligan is this. <laughs> he's this bizarre gay sadist director who came from a theater background uh, and it's very obvious that he comes from a theater background because all of his movies and all his dialogue and the way characters interact is extremely theatrical it really feels like theater dialogue okay that that's not necessarily a bad thing not necessarily but it does not feel like a movie that you're watching most of the time uh and so he made all of these movies on no budget. Like again, the Ed Wood budget is beyond what Andy Milligan could ever have hoped for. Uh, Andy <laughs> Milligan's movies were made for bucks and like they, they look, they look it completely. And the thing is they're all pretty gory, but like very cheap, fakey gore because obviously couldn't afford right. anything more. Uh, but because he he was uh, sadistic. Like he, he is a sadist. That's kind of his thing, his kink. That's a big part of all of the movies. So there's usually this guy who everyone just dumps on and is just some kind of pathetic loser who only exists to uh, receive punishment and pain in, in every <laughs> one of these movies. Curse of the Full Moon, which is an unreleased film of his. Uh, it was later Ooh. released as um, The Rats Are Coming, The Werewolves Are So it's a movie about a family of werewolves. Uh, they're all werewolves, although you don't find that out until literally the end of the movie. I think 70 minutes long. The first hour has not one mention of werewolves. Uh, so they're saving it up for the big reveal. <laughs> just thinking of the bird again. It's kind of like that. And it, well, no, they mentioned just the as silly looking. Yeah, they actually mentioned the bird. This it's just like family drama. It's these people living in this house, and there's some kind of family secret, and they're just bickering and bickering and bickering and bickering. And then an hour into it, suddenly everybody turns into a werewolf and just goes off the rails. <laughs> Okay, that actually sounds kind of amazing. It's so like you you kind of get into the right mood with Milligan. I I've talked it down, but I had a great time watching all three of these because I got in the right mood and just like I rode with it through several of them because you just get in the right mood and like if you're into it, you can kind of just ride through any of his movies because they're all this completely bizarre mood. Uh, the second one I would say is my favorite of the three I watched. This is Guru the Mad Monk. Uh, and it, this one is only 56 minutes long. Oh. It's about a serial killer monk 
who runs a church in a prison colony island. Uh, and he, as the monk of this prison, is the person who gives all of the punishment. So Okay. Uh, he's, we, we get a few different scenes of him just uh, giving out punishment to a line of people. Like, they're, they're marched into him by guards, and he'll, like, poison them, or he'll cut off a hand, or he'll burn them with a cross, or he'll chop their head off, or he'll have them executed, and just one by one by one. Uh, and he also has a vampire girlfriend who helps him run the place. Right. <laughs> uh, it's, it's pretty crazy. There, there is a, his superior comes to check on him and there's this other guy who he's going to replace him with because he feels like someone else needs to run the place because it's too big of a responsibility to do on his own. But uh, Father Guru, which is his name, uh -huh. Guru is his name, uh, is obviously not going to stand for that. So fight back against them. Uh, even at 56 minutes, there's a lot of scenes where nothing happens, but uh, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's that Milligan mood. You have a serial killer monk with a vampire girlfriend running a prison colony. That's pretty zany. <laughs> uh, and the third one is Legacy of Blood, which is a remake of one of his earlier films, uh, the ghastly one about a family who stays in a haunted house uh, because their father's will requires it before the will will be read for some right. reason. One of those sort of, you know, you know, there's a lot of those, right? I'm putting that in my will. Actually, somebody has to stay in a haunted house, of any course. haunted house. It doesn't have to be one of mine because I won't own a house in my lifetime. Theoretically. So that they can get all the stuff in my will, which won't amount to much. <laughs> I just want people to stay in a... I just want to be part of that story, you know, in some way. I just want to make people sleep in a haunted house, of course. Yeah! I understand. So in Legacy of Blood, obviously people start getting picked off. Uh, very slowly, of course. There's a whole mm -hmm. lot of family bickering first. Uh, family bickering is a big hallmark of a Milligan film. You, you get a lot of just people having long theatrical arguments with each other. Uh, and usually about some sort of long-standing family dispute. Right. Uh, so that's the three of those. And uh, last one uh, is Seven. Uh, the Oh, yes. Andy Segarra. The uh, Brad Pitt. <laughs> no, not the Brad Pitt. Uh, this no, is William Morgan Smith. Freeman. William Smith, uh, who oh, I, I mentioned who recently. Week, yeah. Who, who recently died. Uh, it's him... Uh, so, Andy Sedaris, you've seen Hard Ticket to Hawaii. Yes. Yeah, so yes. This is, uh, at least a couple times. Right. So this is the same director. This is from 1979. And it's not okay. quite the same cinematic universe. Because all of the other ones are. He has... Uh, let me see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. He, there's 11 films in the series, and they're all a consistent cinematic universe that reference each other except this one uh but this first one it's about uh these seven crime bosses have gotten together and formed an organization and they're going to take over i don't remember what they're taking over it's some country like they're going to take over an entire country okay uh it might be japan or something i don't remember uh, anyway, these uh, William Smith has to get together 
seven assassins to target these seven crime bosses. So what this ends up meaning is there's 35 minutes of introduction of character uh, before oh, we, boy. anything else happens because there's seven different assassins we have to meet and seven different crime bosses that they each have to individually target because uh, the rest of the film is just them executing their plan where each of them has to go after one of these bosses singly. Like each of the assassins all at the same time have to go after these bosses and get them all at once. Uh, it's really fun. It's, it's kind of a lot to take in because there's so many characters to keep track of, but there's a lot of really fun kills. Uh, the score is just this really great seventies funk score. And it's just bleasy seventies atmosphere that's kind of hard not to enjoy. All right. Uh, and that's it. That, those are them. All right. It doesn't have a, blow-up doll skateboard rocket launcher scene it has a blow-up doll and it has the skateboard guy it doesn't <laughs> it have a rocket guy? launcher yet it has that guy that skateboard guy and he does oh my god multiple skateboard by killings in the opening oh, credits no less he has three kills in the opening credits <laughs> i was joking i'm so happy that's real <laughs> it's a good time all right so uh which of those uh, are are you interested in checking out next week? Oh well, let's see. Some tough picks. These are yes. some solid ones this time. Yes, indeed. Um, let's go and see what we got. So there was. Well, I had been eyeing Freddy versus Jason, but you kind of unsold me on that one. Mm. Um. So, which you know, maybe I'll maybe I'll check it out a different time. Yeah, I mean, I, I do have it. We can always watch it. I'm always yeah, down to exactly. watch some Friday the 13th crap. <laughs> yeah, so um, let's let's try Seven. I want to see the skateboard guy again. Yeah, Seven's a lot of fun. All right, and yeah. then uh, we'll go through the things added to the list uh, and then choose our final film. Uh, so added to the list, of course, first Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Uh, in which the crew has to make their way back home. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, in this one, uh, this one most famously, they end up traveling back in time, so they're in 80s America, uh, and they have to find their way back home through time, and they also have to save the whales. Right, this is the Save the Whales one. I've yeah. I've heard this is one of the really good ones. Uh ever like the the general consensus is 2 and 4 are the best. That that's pretty commonly uh the way people figure. 2 4 and then, you know, others. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh also added Nosferatu in Venice, which is an unofficial sequel to the Klaus Kinski Nosferatu movie. Okay. Uh legendarily goofy. Uh, from what I hear, it's supposed to be really great looking, like beautifully shot, but incredibly silly other than that. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about it other than that, but it's supposed to be just like famously good looking and stupid. <laughs> okay. Uh, Freddy vs. Jason is replaced by Friday the 13th, 2009, the uh, reboot remake. Oh, have, have you seen that one? I don't know. You know what? I haven't. I saw that one in theater, and I have not seen it again since. But I really enjoyed it at the time. I, I feel like it was better than the reputation it's gotten since. It's a remake okay. of the first three Friday the 13th films, which oh, is kind of an interesting Ooh. way to go about it. 
because yeah. like uh like you've seen Friday the 13th one of course with uh I've de- yeah with uh Jason's mom so that's yeah. basically like the first 5 minutes of this one and then okay. 2 and 3 are more what this one is a remake of which is kind of cool it just sort all of right. puts them all together so that you get Jason's mom and Jason uh from the Andy Milligan box the current one there is Fleshpot on 42nd Street which is his movie about the life of a Times Square sex worker in the early 70s uh so like maybe his absolute sleaziest and generally considered his best work it's it's almost kind of a verite cinema verite type film which is very different from what you'll get with most of his other okay and of course, uh, replacing seven, uh, it, the Andy, uh, Andy Sedaris uh, collection, we have Malibu Express, which is the actual start of the Andy Sedaris cinematic universe. It introduces Cody Abilene, who is a secret agent. Who, and, you know, he, he has to put a stop to probably drug runners. I can't remember which one it is, but they're usually drug in, in these movies. Uh, and that's all the additions. So, uh, uh, that, that's pretty much everything. Uh, what do you figure for just our main movie now? Well, I uh, while we were discussing it, I hadn't. I was looking at the list, couldn't decide. This time, I put it through a random number generator. The first time, uh, I came up with Friday the Thirteenth, but thought to myself, "Oh no, I've seen this before." And then you, and then I picked something else. But then you told me that it was actually not the Friday the Thirteenth I've seen before. So let's do that. Friday the 13th. All right, cool. The Friday the 13th, 2009. All right. All righty. Well, uh, it's a bit of a shorter one this week. Hopefully we will not have any uh, issues with the middle of the episode. We, we, our recorder quit randomly in the middle. Hopefully we'll be uh, not missing too much there. Here. Uh, hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, thanks very much for joining us as always, uh, and uh, keep watching the stacks. Bye bye.